Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, Brittany and I want to jump in with a quick message from the future, as in we are stating this brief message after having recorded and aired this episode back in 2019. But we thought it was important to bring this message because at the time of recording, we were not aware that not everyone who has endometriosis identifies as a woman. So this is why you wanted to bring this message at the beginning of this episode before you even start the episode, because during this episode, at the time of recording, we referred to women with endometriosis instead of people with endometriosis. Now that we have this knowledge that not everyone who has endometriosis identifies as a woman, we think it's really important to state that endometriosis can affect people of any gender identity. And we wish we had known this at the time of recording so that in bringing you the important information in this episode on treatment, we could have used inclusive language. While listening to today's episode, if you don't identify as a woman in the places where we used that language, we do want to clarify now that we acknowledge and welcome you and that this information on treatment applies to all people with endometriosis. Amy and I believe that it's important to have a safe and inclusive space when talking about endometriosis because this is an awful disease that we are all suffering with together. Amy and I have been actively learning about how this disease affects people of all gender identities and expressions, and we shifted to inclusive language in our more recent episodes. So to all of our listeners, to all people with endometriosis, non-binary, transgender, gender diverse, male, female, woman, man, and every and any way that you identify, we welcome you. Now, we'll go ahead and let the original episode that was recorded back in 2019 play from the beginning. Today, we're going to talk about what effectively treats endometriosis. Note the use of the word effectively in that phrase, because there's plenty of, quote, treatments out there that are not effective ways to treat endometriosis or don't actually treat it at all or as well as other treatments. And because of that, this episode is probably going to be kind of long. So strap in for the ride. Get ready, folks. <laughs> vroom, vroom, because we wanted to keep all of this information in one place that would be easy to access because there are countless endo myths that we are battling against. We as in the endometriosis community are battling against and they're on websites, Facebook groups, TV even shows, commercials, <laughs> yeah, celebrities, e everything. Even being told to us by misinformed doctors, which is the people that are supposed to be informed and that we're supposed to trust in their knowledge. By the way, this episode is going to be pretty research heavy. So we have gone ahead and we've listed all of the sources that we use to make this episode. 
and all of our past episodes. It is now on our website in 16years.com. The resources include all of the sources, research studies, and articles that we use in the making of this episode and all of our episodes so that you can go ahead and empower yourself and do your own self-research. And much to Amy's chagrin, we are not perfect. (laughs) And of course, we can always make mistakes in what we talk about, which is why we encourage you to do your own research. Do it. That's really what started us to realize what we were hearing from other people who claim to be experts didn't have the accurate information was self-research. So don't hesitate to reach out if you think we need to update something or explain or clarify something further. It's really important for us to spread correct, reliable, and accurate information. Before we start, I, I realized as we were researching the information for this episode, and then I was thinking about how it applied to my own life and how I had lived a lot of these experiences via poorly misinformed doctors, it really hit me how confusing and scary and overwhelming it can be to try to find effective treatment for endometriosis. I mean, the general medical profession and literature that the medical profession is relying on is oftentimes misinformed and operating on information that is out of date. We're going to talk about some things in this episode that are actually not effective treatments. And I tried some of them and knowing that they're not effective treatments, yet I was told that they were effective treatments has made me feel frustrated and angry and upset and deceived by my doctors who I'm sure they were just misinformed and they didn't know the bigger picture, but it's something that's it's hard to grapple with. So I have been telling myself, like when I was writing out this episode and trying to deal with my own feelings, I've been telling myself that I did the best that I could with the information that I had at the time. I've been trying to forgive the doctors who unintentionally hurt me with their poor advice and their misinformation. And then I've been trying to forgive myself for not having known that I could have done my own research and been more involved in my treatment and asked more questions or researched into these treatment plans that they were offering me. And honestly, it has been a really hard process. And it's not like, okay, like I forgive these doctors. Yay, peace and love. It's a process that I think it takes a, it takes time to work through. And this certain it's so funny because I like feelings I have about this one doctor when I was 19 years old, which is like 14 years ago, like keep resurfacing because this doctor really hurt me unintentionally. So I mention all of this because as we go through the episode and we talk about the effective treatments for endometriosis versus other treatments that are offered, I just, like, if these feelings come up for you, I really do want you to know that you did the best you can with the information that you had at the time. While we're living in this world where misinformation on endometriosis has been way more abundant and preached and shouted like from the rooftops by so many people just being spread and spread misinformation than the correct information. No one has taught us how to live with this devastating illness. No one has taught us how to be health advocates for ourselves or that we would even need to be. So I just, before we start talking about the treatments, I just want everyone listening to know that you are so immensely strong for living with this illness. You're so strong. 
And Brittany and I recognize that, and we want you to know that. So Amy and I decided to do this episode because we really wanted to add to the spread of correct positive information instead of the nasty spread of misinformation. And there's absolutely no shame in having tried some of these treatments or thinking they were effective or being told they were effective. And we hope you understand that we are not trying to make anybody feel bad for having tried a treatment that's not effective. But the purpose of this episode is because we really do want to help this episode be a tool in your quest for getting effective treatment. And for people who haven't started their treatment journey yet, hopefully this will be a good place to start. We will now dive deep, deep dive into a 30-foot pool. I want to make like a submarine sound. (laughs) Like, like, that's the dive sound, right? We're going in. (laughs) So strap your seatbelts on. Yeah, buckle up, kids. It's time to go diving. (laughs) Put your scuba gear on. Get your your tank ready. We're going. We're going under. (laughs) Brittany. Amy. The most important and pressing and important and pressing and important, okay, question. (laughs) I'm dizzy. (laughs) About endometriosis. Yes. Can it be cured? Well, (laughs) there is no cure, but, but there is expert care. Ooh. So there's hope. Okay. I like to be hopeful. Yes. There is expert care that can alleviate a lot of the symptoms, but there is no full-scale cure. All right, Brittany, I want that. Okay, you want that? I want expert care. Okay. How do I get it? Where do I get it? What do I do? What's an expert? <laughs> Whoa. Tell me information, okay. Brittany. Stop what? withholding. One question at a time. Oh, okay. Okay. What's expert care? Expert care. The absolute gold standard with endometriosis treatment, meaning the most effective, the most expert care is excision surgery with an excision specialist. Why is excision the gold standard? So on endopedia.info, in the research that Dr. Redwine had done and that of other surgeons, they followed several hundred women, and they found that after excision, there was no reoccurrence of endo at the second surgery around 80%. Okay, I have questions. Yeah, questions. I'm ready. I'm ready. First, what do you mean they followed them? They stalked them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were like driving behind them. People look in the review room like, we got to check. A, there's a Mercedes. <laughs> we got to check it. <laughs> there's a Mercedes been following us for like five blocks. He's flashing the lights. He's like, he's been following me for like five years now. I'm like, I need a little to take concerned. a look at your ovaries. <laughs> I need to know your bowel wall. I want to see what's going on there. So they did not do that. We'll be clear. No, no, no. They actually did not. <laughs> okay, that was no, for no, the no, sake no. of your laughter. No, they did not stalk them. So what do we mean by followed? I actually reached out to the Center for Endometriosis Care, who is a center of expertise in endometriosis excision. And also very nice. I let them know that we were researching for this podcast episode, and I I wanted to know what their rate of recurrence was. And I wanted to know how they actually track their patients and how they follow their patients to find out this rate of reoccurrence. So... They keep track of patients who they reoperate on themselves, and they also follow their patients through pathology reports if the patient reoperates somewhere else. So reoperations are not always for endometriosis, and actually most times when the person has another pelvic operation, 
The findings show adhesions. They show other pathologies for pelvic pain, but not an actual recurrence of endometriosis. And that's how they can calculate their actual rate of endometriosis reoccurrence in the patients that they are following. So for the Center for Endometriosis, their actual rate is 7%. Wow, that's incredible. 7%. That is amazing. Wow. So that means that, or the of the people that they operate on, 93% don't have endometriosis present some months or years later. And I just wanted to find recurrence is actually the rate in which endometriosis comes back after surgery. So in Dr. Redwine's findings and studies that he did, it was actually 20%. But for the Center for Endo, it's 7%. So that means that Of all of the surgeries done, that's the amount of people in which endometriosis has returned. Both of those rates, fantastic. So very exciting and promising. That is an extraordinarily impressive percentage, both in Dr. Redwine's finding and then in the Center for Endometriosis Care's actual rate. But the burning question, Brittany. What is it? The burning question is, does excision, is it going to help my pain? That's what I care about. I'm in pain, Brittany. Theoretical pain. It hurts I mean, when I go Red the... Dragon is on its way. It so hurts I'm sure when I go to the bathroom. <laughs> it hurts when I have intercourse. It just hurts when I breathe. It hurts when I pick up a pencil. It hurts when you just sit there and think about it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's burning me right now. So tell me the answer. So there's some good news. Okay. The good news is that many who have excision surgery find that their pain is significantly reduced or even gone after the surgery. Even in my own case, that I had excision surgery last year and that about 95% of my endo was removed, but not about 5% according to my excision surgeon, which was on my bowel, where I guess they would have needed a bowel <laughs> resection that they didn't feel the risks outweighed the benefits. So they left some of the endo on my bowel and my pain has diminished so much and I, and I will be forever grateful. It's been 10 months already since my excision surgery, and my pain levels are very low, which is so beautiful. <laughs> no, I mean, and, I can, and, I remember the screaming, writhing. There's a very big difference between the screaming, writhing pre-excision and the post-excision. Amy. No more, no more going to the ER. No, no more, more people calling 911. No more screaming during a bowel movement. Yeah, no more crawling down the street. Like, that's a, a that's chance a big of one. a better sex life. Cause yeah, sex no 20 hour hurt. cramps later. Yeah, <laughs> what a novel idea. I love excision surgery. It's important to remember that with any surgery, any treatment, we're all different. So while excision does significantly reduce or even disappear or Ooh, it sounds like a magician. <laughs> my excision magician disappeared my endometriosis <laughs> symptoms. He has a hat. He just like pulls out. There's like a rabbit, but covered in endometriosis. Oh, like, covered in gory. His ear is like hanging off. Oh, wow. It's not even Halloween. <laughs> Poor little baby bunny rabbit. I know. This is a cruelty-free show. So we're going to... Absolutely. We're going to retract that statement about the bunny rabbit being covered in enemy It was a theoretical bunny rabbit, not a real one. I would never. I love animals very, very much. This podcast is Leaping Bunny certified. Cruelty-free, 100%. For both us and the animals. <laughs> so while many people with excision surgery do find that their pain is significantly reduced or gone, it's important to remember that excision surgery, this is why it's not a cure because... 
It does not always help all of the pain in everyone. It's important to remember that there can be other cofactors with pelvic pain. So not all pelvic pain is endometriosis. There are other things that do cause pain in the pelvic area, such as pelvic floor dysfunction or IC or other causes. So I know a lot of patients after surgery do choose to seek a pelvic floor therapist if their pain persists. So they get pelvic floor therapy, but with a trained physical therapist that is trained in women's pelvic pain. My gosh, it's like a mouthful, like pelvic, pelvic, pelvic. Try to say that five times fast. (laughs) Pelvic floor therapy has been really beneficial to a lot of endo sufferers, and that can be another component of your treatment. And I think it's important to remember that while excision is the gold standard, there are other therapeutic ways to, to help our bodies such as pelvic floor therapy and diet and lifestyle, and we'll get to that a little later on. All right, so we hear all the time excision surgery, the gold standard, expert, excision surgery, excision. I'm going to name. I'm gonna get another cat. I'm going to name my cat excision surgery. I'm, I'm going like, to prevent Come that. Come here, excision surgery. Yeah, no. <laughs> Come here, little excision vision. vision. That's terrifying. <laughs> what would you call him for short? Like X? No, it's like oh, that's ugly. I just Sizzy. Yeah, Sizzy. Yeah. I'm gonna go get a gonna pause this while I go to the animal shelter. We're not getting you another cat, okay? <laughs> just so you can name an excision surgery. <laughs> She's gonna foster a cat and name an excision surgery, so then it has to go to some other family with the name excision surgery. <laughs> like it couldn't it would be traumatic if you change the name of this cat. It responds to the name excision surgery. Traumatizing. Like, um, I'm sorry, ma'am. What is excision surgery? Well, let me inform you via this episode of my podcast. Please take a listen. <laughs> yeah, Brittany. You know what? It's promotion. Inform. Yeah. Inform. Inform all the right. listeners. And all right. Me. I'm, all right. Now I'm, I'm on your side. Confused. Now oh, I'm okay. on your side. Thank you. Tell me what is it. <laughs> so first, I'm going to answer your question by telling you what excision surgery is not. Ooh, tricky. So excision surgery is not. Ablation. That sounds nasty. It kind of. I'm never naming a I mean, cat ablation. <laughs> Come kind here, ablation. That's kind of more fun to say. Let's not lie. But no, excision surgery is not ablation. And ablation is actually the superficial burning away of endometriosis on the surface level, while excision actually removes endometriosis by cutting it out and taking the roots with it. So one's like sweeping it under the rug. One's like actually fixing the floor. There's two different things. I'm sorry, they, you said ablation is burning? Burning. Oh. <laughs> oh Does it make smoke? I mean, it could. I've never been there for one. <laughs> I'm not going to burn the kitty. Oh, yeah. Give me your ablation. No, no, I thought you up. were going to do that. <laughs> I just want well, to be clear. This remains. Disclaimer, I'm not going to harm a cat. I thought you said we were Leaping Bunny certified. <laughs> this All this animal pain. A cruelty-free podcast. I swear. I swear. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So why is my kitty named excision surgery, what would I say, dominant, bigger, better, <laughs> the gold kitty? Oh. Yes. Are you replacing your other kitty as, as top kitty with excision surgery kitty? <laughs> why is the excision surgery kitty the top kitty, the most effective and gold standard kitty the oh, kitty okay. all kitties aspire to be. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This is getting really cat-oriented. <laughs> it really far here. Over-ablation. Okay. Minus the kitties. Okay. <laughs> so I have to do all that in my head, minus the Referring kitties. Referring okay. to endometriosis. Okay. 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 
So it is not top kitty because ablation, while a shorter surgery, can actually harm healthy tissue because of the heat that's generated. So it can actually... Because of the burning. Side. So the, the ablation adding to the fire inside you. The ablation kitty is hairless. <laughs> oh, I like Sphinx cats. They're so cute. Let's not make fun of them. I'm not, but you said it, you burn your insides. So the kitty yeah. clearly doesn't want to have that kind of threat. So it, this ablation kitty does not have hair. Okay, this is getting so deep into the kitty. Obviously, references. obviously. Brittany. Okay, yeah. So the hairless ablation kitty. <laughs> Well, that, well, what this means basically is because of the heat that's generated from the ablation, it can't actually be done on all of the tissues because there's a chance it can harm the tissue. So, like, for example, the intestines, they're very delicate and sensitive. I'd hope so. So if you have endo on your intestines, they can't actually do the ablation there because it could actually harm the intestinal walls. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... So they would not have been able to get 95% of no. my bowel endo. No, not even close. They would have got 0%. Yes, your sensitive, delicate oh, bowel wall. Well, I don't want my bowel wall to burn and rupture, and then my fecal matter gets all oh, over whoa. my cavity. We went from cats to fecal matter, <laughs> like, in two seconds. You mentioned the word intestine. What, Brittany? All right, Wait, fair. do you That's know fair. what's in the intestines? Yes, I'm very well informed fecal about matter. my villi passing the fecal matter down to my colon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And something really fascinating to note, as we talked about the rate of recurrence with excision, which, remember, was 20% in Dr. Redwine's research, with ablation, the rate of recurrence or it coming back, the persistence of endometriosis, is a lot higher. It's actually anywhere from 40 to 100% chance that it's going to return. Oh, wow. That's a big difference. So it is a pretty resistant kitty. Yes, that hairless kitty <laughs> if you, keeps if you, its claws in deep. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're in there. You're like, all you did was shave the hair <laughs> off of the hairless kitty. You didn't actually take the kitty out. There's a big difference. Okay. <laughs> that kitty's down there. <laughs> Got my claws in deep. Get out of me, kitty. Well, the reason we couldn't 100% remove the kitty is because endometriosis has roots, which ugh, sound like roots growing inside of you. It's so gross. But when you just ablate the endometriosis, aka shave the hair off of the kitty, you don't remove the whole kitty, okay? I'm going with Amy's reference. Hang on with me. But when you do excision, you actually cut, this sounds violent, cut the cat out. <laughs> I thought this was cruelty-free. You did this to me. This is just a metaphor. <laughs> Keep going. Just... You cut the endometriosis out, which means you remove the roots a.k.a. the cat's claws from your bowels, and you take it completely out. So ablation, superficial, excision gets the roots or the kitty's claws out of your insides. But just to note, you should never declaw your kitty. Yes, that is actually taking away the first joint in their paws. Yes. That's it's, pretty it, mean. It hurts them, and it's very cruel. So since this, we are making... Cruelty-free. We also we are mean making references cruelty-free. We do, and a lot of people don't know that. A little bit of knowledge. Side knowledge. Just get your kitty a scratching post. They will scratch the post and leave your furniture alone. So don't remove the kitty claws. Yeah. Leaping bunny certified. Cruelty free. This whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) With excision, since it's cut away, it can actually even be excised or cut away on these more difficult parts like... On the sensitive tissues. The bladder. Ooh, so delicate. The intestines. Ooh, don't ablate that. The diaphragm. Ooh, very sensitive. Eyeball. Oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa, we went real far north. No, 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 no. 
<laughs> There's no endometriosis there. <laughs> or is there? My I eye mean, has been kind of itchy been, recently. Yeah, I've had a foggy eye and a twitch. So. It's been kind of red. It's like... <laughs> There's some spots on it. I'm not sure what's I going on. I had to wear a patch on. recently. So as we said before, with ablation, the heats are too high for those sensitive, delicate tissues. But with excision surgery, the endometriosis and all of its roots can actually be excised from those delicate tissues. It's a very big difference. Okay, so I've been thinking about this rate of recurrence. It's kind of blowing my mind for ablation. And since the rate of recurrence is anywhere from 40% to 100, what does that mean for people who receive ablation surgery? It means they got a lot of kitties in their abdomen, and I hope they are not allergic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it means that since the disease was not truly removed at the roots, a.k.a. the claws, the root is where the disease grows from. That's why it's called the root. Root of all problems. (laughs) The root of all evil is endometriosis. Okay. (laughs) So many patients who have had ablation end up having several surgeries year after year to go back and get the endometriosis that recurs, that grows back. And I've heard of people having ablation surgery 10, 15, even 20 times. That is so much surgery. That's that's a lot. That's so taxing on your body. And on you emotionally, I think. Yeah, if, if that sounds like something you've experienced, I'm so sorry for how exhausting that must be and how painful that must be. Another problem with ablation is that, so every surgery can lead to the formation of scar tissue and adhesions. And scar tissue and adhesions can actually cause you pain. So another problem with ablation is that when a person has multiple surgeries, it can lead to more scar tissue and and adhesions, which in turn may lead to more pain, which is exactly often what the surgeries we're having to get rid of our pain. So it's creating other problems on top of the problem that already exists. That's a really tough experience to have. It's like the ablation kitty growing on top of the ablation kitty, oh. <laughs> their conjoined ablation kitty. Oh my God. <laughs> and because of that reason, a lot of patients who have had ablation find that their pain comes back only months after surgery. That is so profoundly sad to me. And if you've had ablation surgery and you're in a spot where the pain has returned after you had the surgery and thought that you'd have relief, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing that again. I know many in the community who have had ablation surgery or even several ablation surgeries do seek out excision surgery once they learn about it or maybe once it becomes accessible to them because we all know that it's like, oh, yeah, just go have excision surgery. You're like, um, hello, money. What about insurance and access? Don't say the word insurance, please. Location. Um, I don't (laughs) live anywhere near an excision specialist. Fair. It breaks my heart that we don't all have the same access to excision surgery, perhaps because of the location where we live or our insurance coverage or our lack of insurance coverage, or maybe it's just too cost prohibitive. Sometimes we have to move mountains to access excision surgery, appealing to our insurance, waiting for months on a wait list traveling across the country to an endometriosis center, or even traveling to another country, starting a GoFundMe account, or taking out a loan to pay for it. 
It saddens me that we might have to wait for years to get excision surgery until it's affordable or accessible to us. During that time, we're suffering, and sometimes very deeply. It took me 16 years to have excision because I didn't even know that it existed as an option. It took a year and a half from when I learned about excision surgery until I could finally get excision surgery, at during which time my pain had gotten so bad on a daily basis that I was struggling to keep my job and to keep my life together. I got diagnosed and treated in my same excision surgery at 33 years old, after having suffered for 16 years. And before excision, I was in chronic pain daily debilitating pain monthly, and I had to plan my life around a whole set of exhausting rules such as food and sleep and exercise, and these rules dictated if I would be bedridden that day or if I would get to go to work. I find it disgraceful that considering that excision is the gold standard for a debilitatingly painful illness, it's completely unacceptable that in the medical system, they don't inform us about excision and that we suffer for decades, and that it's not available for all of us who are suffering. If you're not able to have excision at this time, I really hope that you can find ways to manage your pain and your symptoms through lifestyle and diet and acupuncture, supplements, Chinese herbs, birth control pills, or some other method, because we all have to find what works for each of us because we're all different. But I hope that if you want excision surgery as treatment, that one day you'll be able to get excision. So please don't give up. Just because excision isn't accessible right now to you doesn't mean that it won't be accessible to you in the future. I sincerely hope that as the general medical community begins to understand the efficacy of excision surgery compared to other available options, that more doctors will begin to offer it that the price tag on it will lower, and that it will become better covered by insurance plans. So, Amy, I do have a question about excision surgery. Of course you do, Brittany. Of course you do. Fine, ask it. I know that it's very complicated, which we've established. But since it's the gold standard and it is the most effective, why don't more surgeons do excision surgery? So many people, Brittany, are allergic to cats. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) So they'd rather just burn the cat than remove it? That's horrible. I'm so sorry if you're allergic to cats because cats are just... I am. Get out of this box. That's why I sneeze every time you come over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a good point because so many endosufferers are being treated with ablation and not being informed of excision. Like, I don't even know excision existed for the first several months when I was looking for treatment. So why are we not being offered the gold standard from the start? And why don't more gynecologists specialize in excision surgery for endometriosis? I will tell you why. I'm excited. I'm waiting with bated breath. One. Yeah, I'm going to put numbers in. Wow. <laughs> Official. One. Not, these are not in any order. I've personally numbered these are just reasons, and I've numbered them oh, in okay. no particular So they're order. arbitrary numbers, but I arbitrary, still like it. Arbitrary. I'm still Arbitrary here for number it. one. <laughs> Excision surgery is generally considered, are you ready? I am. The hardest gynecological surgery to do. Okay, that explains a lot. Okay, so your wow. excision surgeon 
is a rock star with a scalpel. Wow. Picture that. Wow, that's incredible. It takes a lot more training to learn excision surgery because, as I said, it's the hardest, generally considered the hardest gynecological surgery. So usually they have to do a two-year fellowship in minimally invasive gynecological surgery. MIGS. I don't, Ooh, know. I don't know if it's called like MIGS that. or MIGS. I just like it either way. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to have, after you do a fellowship, it's like, oh, I did a fellowship. I'm ready to operate. Mm, yes, but. Yes, but no. Really? They need to have years of experience with excision. Quick side note. I had a cancer scare, and but it turned out to be an endometrioma on my ovary. Surprise, surprise. It was endometriosis that made it look like cancer. Mm-hmm. Grapefruit size. <laughs> oh, just living inside you. <laughs> Did cats like grapefruits? I mean. <sighs> Can cats have grapefruits? I mean, they'd like to roll them around. They can have watermelon, I think. But anyways, well, my, my cats do at least. <laughs> well, or I is that why they have so much diarrhea? Anyways. Wow. <laughs> okay. Cruelty free. Rolling, reeling it back in. When I had the surgery with the gynecological oncologists who operated on cancer tumors in the abdomen that were usually ovarian cancer, things like that, I asked him, okay, if it's, if it, he was going to remove the mass, which turned out to be endometrioma, no matter what, like that, that was surgery was removing the mass. But I asked him, so what are you going to do if it's not ovarian cancer? And if it turns out to be endometriosis, what are you going? What to do? What to do? What are you going to do? I was I was so impressed, one, by his answer, and two, by the level of expertise and training and experience that it takes to treat endometriosis because he said, and he's like a top-notch gynecological oncologist. I'm so ready to hear. I'm excited. He said. What did he say? Dun, 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 that he would not ever treat endometriosis because it is such a complicated surgery that he prefers to leave that in the hands of, of the excision surgeon, the expert. So he's like, I'm not going near endometriosis with a 10-foot pole. I'm going to remove that mass. If it's not ovarian cancer, I'm going to get out of there. I'm going to take some pictures so your excision surgeon can see what it looks like. And, and then, then I'm exiting. And then peace out. <laughs> I mean, that's honestly and incredible. And I'm running for Far away. my life. I'm going to open up and be like, oh, my God, what is this disaster zone? A bomb go off? And, and then I'm going to close it up. spider webs everywhere. And then I close it up. And I'm going to run for my life with my hands in the air screaming, ah, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to turn in my license. Whoa, 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 wow. Yeah, that's how scared people get. Well, I mean, it's kind of, it's very respectable and fascinating that a person of such high stature in his field even knows the type of skill and training that it takes to do excision and that he didn't possess that. Like, that's honestly incredible and very impressive. He was so humble. Next, arbitrary number two for the reasons why there aren't so many excision surgeons is, have you ever noticed that it said, like a lot of the places when you go to the gynecologist, it says OBGYN? Yes, I have. Well, Brittany. OB, which is obstetrics Mm -hmm. care, which is delivering kitties. No, no, no. Delivering babies. I was going to say, wait a minute, that's a veterinarian. I think a cat's about to come out of my vagina. Uh, Pretty painful. That's something you need to seek a specialist specialist about. Okay, we'll take you somewhere else. No, I think obstetrics delivers human babies. Okay. Not just our fur babies. Here's the thing. If, if If a doctor is delivering babies... 
How are they going to have time to do five to ten excision surgeries a week when they're delivering babies? There's no, they don't got no time for that. Yeah, can't you just like, okay, one popped out, catch it, give it to the mom, run over to the next OR and do an excision surgery, run back, the next lady's ready, pop out the baby, catch it, give it to the mom, run, like, that's not. And then you give the mom the endo cat too, you're like, we've heard <laughs> oh, children do really well when they have pets from a young age. Here's an endo cat. This is the mom like, I have this hairless cat here. This is pre-excised for you. <laughs> prepped and ready to go. <laughs> Plus, honestly, think about babies are just so warm and fuzzy. And when a baby is born, it's like it's a happy a, moment generally. Well, and it's like a miracle in the room. You were you were like, oh, there's a baby. Two people, a human and life. now you're three people. I oh mean, wow. With endometriosis, just like <laughs> it's like a demon comes out <laughs> a of devil you. child. <laughs> a demon comes out of you. Like cut it open. It's all he goes. Ah. <laughs> it's all different colors in there. There's it's like horns like, and flames and like teeth. Like it's just like scary, angry <laughs> Satan. Yeah, that okay. There's a difference. I can see that again. So excision surgeons are rock stars. Yeah, they exercise and excise the demons. <laughs> Number three, arbitrary numbering. A lot of doctors in medical school are not taught that excision is the gold standard for endo. Shocking. Yeah. And instead, they're taught to treat endo with ablation or with medicines. The misinformation is rampant. In our last episode, we talked about some of the theories for endometriosis, and we mentioned Samson's theory of retrograde menstruation. That is an unproven theory that is 100 years old, mind you. That's a long time to not be proved. And yet many doctors are taught this theory in medical school. And so operating from that theory... Again, theory means not factual, just theory. A conjecture. Yes. An idea. An idea. So many doctors are not aware that excision surgery has a drastically lower rate of occurrence. And so many doctors believe that ablation is just fine because with Samson's theory of retrograde administration, supposedly endometriosis supposedly grows back every month with your menstruation. So if it grows back anyways, well then Some doctors believe, okay, well, why do excision? It's just going to grow back anyways. I'll just go in there, burn the kitty. Kitty's going to grow back. It's going to grow back anyways, supposedly. Air quotes, air quotes. Yeah, the statistics prove otherwise, Mr. Air quotes, air quotes, Samson. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd go with the rate of recurrence, not the I just think this theory is a good idea. Well, they don't know the rate of recurrence because they Mm -hmm. never learned it. Sad. It's all about what you've been taught. Mm-hmm. They need to listen to this podcast. I know. Can we just like be like, hey, med schools everywhere, <laughs> listen to this. I don't think that would Maybe go over we well. Maybe big but... money, we could get into <laughs> Excuse me, big pharma. Could you help us out? <laughs> it's not going to work either. <laughs> number four, final number four, although there may be other reasons, but the number four. That I Her arbitrary number four. That I know about is that there's no incentive to specialize in endometriosis. So there's no institutional recognition of this subspecialty. You would think an incentive to specialize in endometriosis would be the fact that you'd be helping thousands with pain and debilitating symptoms and have a better quality of life. 
That's just my two cents. It sounds like a great incentive to me, but <laughs> but I guess not everybody's driven by the same things. <laughs> Brain surgery sounds really cool. Excision surgery, maybe not so much. That's the unfortunate world that we live in. Let's talk about doctors, Brittany. I mean, okay. we've been talking about them, but let's talk about how to find a good doctor for endometriosis, an expert Ooh. doctor who offers expert care. What is that? What is a good doctor? Well, what a is great it someone on, who says, I'm a good doctor? Uh, no. Is it someone who's highly rated on Yelp? Well, I mean, potentially, but like probably you shouldn't shop for doctors on Yelp. <laughs> Okay, I've been doing things so really wrong <laughs> yeah, all of these years. That really, explains a lot. Really wrong. Okay. <laughs> Every time I put kitty in, these veterinarians pop up. I'm yeah. like, do you treat endometriosis? And they just hang up on me. And I'm like, welcome. All the aggression. We have problems we should discuss. <laughs> Tell me, Brittany, how to choose an excision surgeon. A good one. Not just any old excision surgeon, but a good, reputable one. I could answer that. So as you so appropriately said, we don't want to just pick any old surgeon who says, I'm good at excision. Because anybody can call themselves a good doctor or claim that they're an expert in endometriosis. Wait, that's called marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Good marketing if people fall for it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, anybody can do that because there's actually no formal standard in gynecology that qualifies somebody to use that title. So so anyone can say they're a good excision surgeon? I mean, anyone can say it, but not everybody is it. Could I say it? it? I mean, no one's going to believe you, but yes, <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a doctor can call themselves an endometriosis expert, but is only doing ablation or is only prescribing hormone treatments or doesn't even do excision. So what a doctor says needs to be backed up by their evidence and people that they've treated. So the doctor needs to walk the talk. Yes, not just talk it. So we need to choose a doctor with care. Yes, and some research. The best way to know if you're looking at an excision surgeon who is a good excision surgeon is if they are a highly skilled surgeon that has a high volume of patients and understands endometriosis and how to properly diagnose and treat it. Often, they actually solely treat endometriosis and don't practice any obstetrics or any other gynecology at all. There's no time for that. So no babies. No babies. Just kitties. Just demon kitties. (laughs) I mean, with the amount of surgeries they're doing, they don't have the time to be catching babies popping out or anything else related to that. Two babies really pop out, though. (laughs) I mean, my brother did, like, literally. Oh, wow. The doctor was putting his gloves on, and my mom's like, um, he's ready. Doctor turned around and caught him. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's why I said that it's a real thing. (laughs) So what does high volume mean, Brittany? Oh, great question. It means high volume. Okay. So are my eardrums going to burst? I mean, I hope so. Wow. (laughs) After you stand in all the patients' records. Well, it it doesn't mean like a handful. I don't mean like, I have a high volume of patients. I have treated five in the last year. Like, that's not high volume. It also doesn't mean I've treated a hundred. It often means that the endometriosis surgeon actually does excision surgery several times a week, which means actually two to three hundred or even more per year. That is high volume. 
Think about all the practice and all the surgeries and all the experience that that doctor has gained from that high volume of patients he's treating. I remember my excision surgeon was doing about nine endometriosis surgeries a week. And as I mentioned, I reached out to the Center for Endometriosis Care via email, and I asked them how many surgeries Dr. Ken Sinervo did per year, and they told me that in 2018, are you ready? I am. Drumroll. He did, it's very impressive, 350 surgeries. Oh my goodness. And in fact, they said in the email, quote, Their center has performed over 8,000 combined procedures in more than 7,000 individuals from 50-plus countries over the past 30 years. Wow, that is honestly such an incredible amount of experience. End quote. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) So high-volume excision surgeons, they're doing surgeries in the hundreds per year. And that volume is which is what's making them highly skilled. Okay, Brittany, I get it. I get it. Lots of <laughs> surgeries, hundreds of surgeries a year. Meow, all those kitties. Mm-hmm. But where do I start? How do I try to find a doctor who's qualified to, to do excision and expert care and rip my kitty out of my intestines? Kind of fecal matter. Wh- whoa. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you asked. Minus that last part. <laughs> Okay, well, I put together a detailed page on my website, which I linked in the show notes today, on how to find an excision surgeon. You can find one by Googling for them, getting recommendations from patients, and there's lists of surgeons out there. But, 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 no matter where you first hear your surgeon, you absolutely must ask the surgeon questions to see if they have the skills to treat your endometriosis. Excision surgeons do not all have equal skills. There are high-volume excision surgeons who have done thousands of excisions, and then there are surgeons who have done less than 100. There are high-skilled surgeons, and then there are mediocre ones. So look at patient reviews. Ask about them in Facebook groups or Reddit. Google them to see if there's any lawsuits. Look at open payments to see any industry ties. Ask about their caseload, their recurrence rates, their complication rates. And again, no matter where you hear, about your surgeon, whether it's on a list or a vetting platform, no matter how reputable the platform initially may seem, do not just assume that they have the skill to treat you. Different surgeons have different skills, and we cannot say that enough. And I've written up really helpful information on my website, including links to helpful questions to help you ask, or should I say, interrogate, your surgeon to understand their skill level and patient volume. So tell us, Brittany, what are some questions that we could ask our doctors? Give us some examples. I can definitely do that. Okay. These questions are really important because they're really going to get to the the root. (laughs) We're saying root a lot in this episode. But the root of whether or not they are qualified and if you want to continue treatment with them. So the very first thing goes Are you allergic to cats? No. Oh. Because remember, endometriosis isn't actually a cat. Oh my God. And you love cats, so like I don't understand. <laughs> no, the real first question is like we were just talking about the high volume to ask how many cases of endo do you see and treat a year? And how many excision surgeries do you do on endo every year? 
that's going to help you to understand if they are performing that high volume and getting that experience and have that experience, or if they're not frequently and currently treating endometriosis with excision surgery. We'll give you a really different picture there. Well, and remember, it's not just how many surgeries are you doing per year, but how many excision surgeries. So they could be doing very specific ablation. They could be doing hysterectomy. They could be doing different types of gynecological surgery. So how many excision surgeries are you doing per year? So we're going to talk about this a little bit later, just a couple minutes. But another good question to ask them is what their stance is on medicines like Lupron or Orlissa. This is important because it will give you a picture of what they believe the best treatment is. So we'll go into that in a little bit, but that's just another good question to ask. I want to know now, Brittany. <sighs> of course you do. Just wait a couple minutes, okay? Meow. <laughs> a question that's really interesting to ask, which we've talked plenty about in the past half an hour or so, is about the rate of recurrence. And you can get some statistics from your doctor and ask them what their rate of recurrence with excision surgery, specifically, is. You can also ask them what's their rate of complication. That's another good one. Because you're looking for a very low rate of complication. Because no one wants complications because it gets complicated. Another really great question to ask is, about your other body parts. So you can ask the doctor how they would treat cases where there's bowel involvement or bladder involvement. I asked my doctor that, and he was like, I would run away screaming. Oh, my. Like, oh, you're the best doctor for me. <laughs> Great. Let's run together. I need Let's exercise. run away together. It's good. <laughs> so how do doctors treat cases with bowel or bladder involvement or other body parts? So they have this beautiful thing called a multidisciplinary team. Ooh. Oh, my. What that means, basically, is that they have a team of people to address endo on those specific body parts, like the bowel, bladder, other suspected areas, because those things are really complex, and they take other additional specializations to be able to excise the endo from those locations. Whenever there were cases of bowel involvement, my endometriosis surgeon would work in tandem with the colorectal surgeon to remove it from the bowel. So this surgeon that he worked with, not only was he a bowel specialist, but he was a bowel specialist that knew about treating endometriosis, which is also really important. So they're often working with other surgeons who specialize in the bowel or the bladder or other parts. And these surgeons also have experience with endometriosis. Like they're not just any old like any, like, I, I know just, what a colon looks like. Sure, I'll jump in. <laughs> no. He just like calls it. He's like opens you up and he sees. That's a bladder. Yep, that's a bladder. On your bowels. <laughs> and he just like pops out in the hall. But he's like, is there anyone here who can treat a bladder? Has anyone to- seen an intestine before? <laughs> uh, can you come in here? <laughs> Gonna need you in operation room number two. Yeah. Scrub up. <laughs> that's not how it works. No. They are both specialized in that body part and in treating endometriosis. Very important. So these are just some of the questions that you can ask. And one last thing to mention before we move on is don't be fooled by the shiny technology that the surgeon could use because a lot of surgeons nowadays are using the Da Vinci robots. Oh, Da Vinci, he's smart. (laughs) So it, it must be a smart robot, right? 
The robot is operated by the surgeon. Oh, oh okay. So okay. it still depends on the surgeon's skills. Oh, darn it. I thought it was some kind of like magic robot <laughs> that just like Da Vinci was like, yes, I made this robot and it's perfect and it does the work for me. It's a tiny little robot, Brittany. This is sarcasm. It's a tiny little robot. They do the incisions, so they open you up a mm-hmm. little tiny one centimeter. Then they pop in this robot that's the size of a Tic Tac, and then the robot unfolds just, in your, he expands. And then he excises yes, everything and he goes in his way. With these like <sighs> cold scissor shears that produce no heat. And he's like, Da Vinci knew what he was doing all those years ago. And he cuts those cat's claws. And, you, and you can just and then it's just out. done. Yeah, and then so that's that's real, right? No. Ah, oh, darn it. No, Brittany. You got my hopes up. Sarcasm. Oh, Jeez. I didn't catch it. Get on board with the jokes. So, just keep in mind that just because they use the robot Da Vinci or whatever robot—I don't know if there's more robots—but I my, my surgeon used the Da Vinci robot. But just because they use the robot does not mean that they are skilled. The robot is. It's its own thing you got to learn how to use. Yeah, it's his own skill. So my surgeon, according to his website, he has a lot of information on the website. Which is also another way to tell if your surgeon is a good option. He has done more than 1,600 procedures with the Da Vinci robot. He did 260 in 2017 alone. And on the website, it says he's a leader in his field. Surgeons fly in to watch him operate or to train with him. So that's how I personally, my doctor was an expert with the robot because he actually trains other surgeons on the Da Vinci robot. So not all doctors have to be like super surgeon robot trainers, but it's definitely really important that they have training and experience under their belt. If you're in the hands of an expert, then the risks are a lot lower because there are always risks. No matter what we do, there are, there are risks, right? Like getting in a car, there's risks. There's going to work, there's risks. There's always risks. So the risks are lower with someone who has adequate training and experience. Now, after that fascinating learning time about the robot, which now I just kind of want a robot, we're going to learn about other, quote, treatments, end quote. Now, these quote, treatments, end quote, are... I can't do that the whole time. (laughs) Says the woman who talked about the cat for literally the entire podcast episode. Fine, whatever, use air quotes. (laughs) Okay, but these treatments for endo are actually being offered as treatment options to people that aren't as effective. Just get pregnant, Brittany, just get pregnant. That's a treatment, get pregnant. Please, God, no. Well, Amy, actually. Then a kitty can come out your vagina instead oh, of living oh, inside. Okay, but I'm allergic <laughs> to cats, so. Then you're screwed. Yeah, I'm in trouble. No treatment options for you. Okay, but stop short, pump the brakes. <laughs> Pregnancy does not cure endo. That is a super old and very outdated myth. So if you hear somebody say this, I would recommend gently correcting them because. We here in our community and this podcast want to not spread misinformation, and that is misinformation. Pregnancy does not cure or even treat endo in any way. If your doctor says you should just get pregnant, run away. Yeah, just run. We don't want to give you like I don't. I don't want to give recommendations. Like you have to make your own decisions. But but on that one, we're gonna recommend. Gonna recommend you just. You're just like thank run you, away. and you just. Just go. Of course, pregnancy is a choice. But in this case, 
This choice does not lead to treatment for endometriosis. So what about a hysterectomy, Brittany? Because because some doctors are telling their patients that a hysterectomy will treat endometriosis. Well, I think the root of that comes from that pesky Samson's theory. It's like, I'm sorry, it wait, just, Samson's theory is It just keeps coming like, and rearing its ugly head. It's like a whole bunch of warts on your thumb and you keep freezing them and, and they, they keep come back. growing back. But that's just a theory about what endometriosis does. And I think a lot of doctors are operating from that premise, the theory that every time you have a period, the endometriosis just comes back. So where do you have your period? Your uterus. So because of that theory being perpetuated as more than just a theory, many doctors recommend opting to remove the uterus via hysterectomy to remove the problem completely. But this logic is based on a flawed theory. But it's important to know that a hysterectomy does not treat endometriosis. Now, there are some cases in which a hysterectomy might be a viable treatment option. With diseases like adenomyosis, where the pain actually originates in the uterus, a hysterectomy may reduce the pain and therefore be an appropriate treatment option. But of course, this is case by case and would need to be discussed with your qualified endometriosis doctor. I know in this community, we joke a lot about our uterus and there's a lot of memes and gifs and just a lot of a lot of uterus speak. Like we talk a lot about our uterus and oh, silly uterus. Why can't you work right uterus? Why are you trying to kill me uterus? You know, even we go so far to be like, screw you uterus and just have like hate speak towards our uterus, which poor uterus. I know. You know, I saw the other day on Instagram, someone had put up a picture of, it was an illustration of a uterus and she had little band-aids on and she was like crying and no, yeah, I feel no, bad like, for the uterus. Yeah, we always make so many jokes about the evil uterus. It's not her fault. No, and this, and then I had so much compassion for my uterus and just for all uteruses, all uteri, like via the that collective uteri. But via that illustration that I saw, it really like it just it really changed my perspective about like poor little baby uterus. Poor little baby is just in there, like she's hurting too, right? And the uterus for many of us is is not the source of our pain. The it's the devil baby endometriosis. <laughs> so why don't why don't we start making memes that have the little uterus sad Poor and the then baby. below it and around it the evil endometriosis. That's more accurate. <laughs> so let's change the memes. <laughs> well, I think that highlights the importance to remember that if the problem is the endometriosis, then Having hysterectomy and removing the uterus but not treating the endometriosis can cause your symptoms to continue because if the symptoms are originating from endometriosis, then we have to actually treat the endometriosis. Or what I think is so infuriating is that sometimes doctors operating from Sampson's theory perform a hysterectomy, remove the uterus, and then don't touch the endometriosis. And then when the person continues to have pain because the endometriosis continues to be in her body, then she's once again told, well, it's in your head. Well, you're making it up. The pain We remove dis- the problem. Yeah. Yeah, we remove the source. And so you shouldn't be having pain. But, but it's real that you still might be. 
That's just really important when you look for treatment to make sure that the doctor that you work with is going to treat your endometriosis. And that may or may not involve treating the uterus depending on your own personal case. Another common treatment option that we hear about are the GnRH drugs. What are the GnRH drugs, you might ask? I am asking. I shall tell you. (laughs) GnRH stands for, are you ready? Gonodotropin, releasing hormone agonists. And some examples of these would be Lupron or Alyssa, Zolodex, and there are others. They work on your hormone pathways to create a pseudomenopause by suppressing your hormones. Medicines may relieve the symptoms of endometriosis when you take them, or they may mask the symptoms of endometriosis so they're not present for you. But usually when you stop taking the medications, the symptoms return. And one thing that I want to point out is that medicines have side effects. And some of the side effects of these medicines can be serious and they can also be irreversible. What really infuriates me is that in spite of these risks, so as we mentioned, everything has risks. And so these medicines too, they have side effects and they have risks associated with them. But in spite of that, many gynecologists give out these medications to to treat endometriosis symptoms. And sometimes they don't even know if you have endometriosis. So I myself, when I was on my journey to diagnosis, I was told by the first, so I was told by the first gynecologist that I was working with, who was not an excision specialist, who was not an endometriosis specialist, but I didn't, I didn't know that at the time. And this gynecologist had very little experience with endometriosis, but again, I didn't know that because I didn't know to ask these questions and to find out about their experience. And she told me, based on my symptoms, that I probably had endometriosis and I should take Lupron to, quote, see if it works for me, end quote. And then she gave me a pamphlet on it. And then she told me to let her know if I wanted it. And then I could call this number to set up the the prescription order for it. And we didn't speak at all about Lupron, what it could do for me. We didn't speak about the seriousness of any potential side effects. Like, we didn't talk at all. She just, she just gave me the pamphlet and told me to think about it and, and let her know. And I think that is a real disservice to us. We need to be adequately and properly informed of the things, the medications, of anything that we're going to put in our body that can potentially affect our health in a positive or a negative way so that we can decide if the benefits outweigh the risks. So we want to point out a couple of things about these medicines, the GnRH medicines that I recently found out about that I was very surprised because I had never heard this information before I began to research into these medications. So the first additional thing we wanted to mention about these medications is that medication cannot diagnose endometriosis. 
It's something that people in our community have told us that they've been told that, well, try the medicine. And if it works for you, then you must have endo. And that's just a myth. Just because the medicine may mask your symptoms does not mean that you have endometriosis. As we know and have said so many times, the gold standard for diagnosing endometriosis is surgery and a pathology report. So positive experiences with a medication does not confirm that you have endometriosis. In fact, a positive experience can just mean that you can have other things that that medication is addressing, but it does not in any way confirm that you have endo. Medicine cannot cure endo, yet many doctors are telling people that this is a treatment for endometriosis. If you take medication for endo, it does not actually remove the endo that you have inside of you. And these medicines actually treat the pain from the endometriosis. That's a, that's a big a big difference. Difference. One is treating, well, the medicines treat. One treats the problems, the, one treats the symptoms. Yes. And these medicines treat the symptoms. The symptoms. Yet we're being told they treat the problem. And because it only treats the symptoms, very often it's a temporary fix. And the pain typically comes back when the person goes off the medication. I think one of the main problems is that these GnRH medications are often being told to the patient, to the endosufferer, that these treat endometriosis. Like they use the phrases, oh yeah, this treats endometriosis. And so we walk away from these appointments with these serious medications thinking, okay, well, you know, like we said, the risk-benefit analysis often we're like, oh wow, well. Sounds low risk, high benefit. Yeah. they're In the way they present it. In the way they present it, they're like, oh wow, this is going to treat my endometriosis. We may or may not be informed of the risks. And we could think that this could be one of the best treatment options, not even knowing that this actually does not treat endometriosis. It only treats the endometriosis pain and symptoms. And yet, sometimes the doctor will say to do surgery, either excision or ablation, and they will say that they do what they can to remove the endo, and then clean up the rest with these medications. So what do they think these medications are? Is it a vacuum? Apparently. Do they just go in there with a broom, they sweep out the cobwebs, then they spray the Lysol? Is that what the medications are? I think that's what they think they do. (laughs) (laughs) Go in there, clean it up. Just make it spick and span in there. What's the song Cinderella sings as she's cleans? <laughs> That's what they are. They're little Cinderellas. <laughs> they all have the, the Cinderella music on in the background. And they're in the operating room. We're like, we're cleaning it up. <laughs> it's so incorrect because the medication doesn't remove the endometriosis. So if your doctor thinks it's okay to just leave a bunch behind because we can clean it up with a medication... That's a doctor that you may want to reevaluate if continuing treatment with them is the right option for you. I find it so sad that we have to research and advocate for ourselves. It's important that we investigate everything that we put in our bodies to make sure we make an informed decision. So we just want to make sure that it's clear that we are here to just offer a resource for you to make the absolute best treatment option for you. And it's your body, which means it's your choice what you want to take or do not take. But we absolutely always advocate doing 110% research 
because unfortunately, doctors are not superhuman. They're fantastic, but they can't possibly know all the information that exists in the universe. And because they have to know so much, if we're going to speak with a doctor, it's best that we know as much as possible about the one thing that's affecting us so that we can work with them for a treatment plan that's based on fact and education. The same goes for treatments, quote unquote, that are birth control hormones, such as the patch, the shot, the coil, the IUD, the pills. My goodness, there's a lot of Ooh. way to get birth control oh hormones goodness. in your body, isn't there? What a Next variety. Be like the sublingual drop, <laughs> the eye drop. No, there's not that. The butt enema. No, no, no. <laughs> but just remember that none of these birth control hormones treat endometriosis. They mask the symptoms, but they do not treat endo in itself. Also, it's a myth that hormones stop the progression of endometriosis when you're taking it. By hormones, I mean both birth controls or GnRH drugs. So endo can still progress while you're taking these hormones. There are no studies that have shown that hormones stop the progression of endo. I know that we keep saying this, but there is so much misinformation out there, and it's really, really important to remember that non-surgical options for endo are like band-aids on the endo. They treat symptoms, but they're not treatment for endo. Birth control or GnRH drugs don't remove the growths that you have, and you can still grow more endo while you're on them. What actually treats endo is excision surgery. You got to cut those demon kitties out, not just cover the kitties in a bunch of Band-Aids. And last week, Dr. David Redwine posted on Facebook, and I quote from Dr. David Redwine, Until and unless gene therapy is developed, excision will remain the most effective form of treatment, likely for many decades. We need to accept that reality and make excision better, deeper, and more widespread, with better pay for surgeons. End quote. I'm still astonished at the mention of gene therapy, and I really hope that they can develop something like that in our lifetime. We definitely recommend following the work of Dr. David Redwine, and we have mentioned him so many times because his information and the resources that he has are so great. And as we said, he's a leader in this field, and he headed the world-renowned and award-winning Oregon Institute of Endometriosis. So he knows what he's talking about. Yep. And he's on Facebook, and the website endopedia.info is based on all of his extensive research. So the final topic we want to talk about is whether or not diet and lifestyle cure endometriosis. While they both play a huge role and you listening to this podcast know how Amy and I feel about diet and lifestyle. We love it. We, we love it. We love, love it. Making we good love choices. It. We love it. It's yeah. helped me so We've much. We've seen so much positive change in symptoms and energy levels and concentration, literally everything. From crippling to everything. working again. Yes, it's amazing. It's a miracle. But it is not a cure for endometriosis. No, it does not heal endometriosis. It does not remove, heal, or do anything to the growths at all. I mean, this entire podcast is about learning about diet and exercise and stress management and laughing a lot. <laughs> and how to feel better every day is important, but 
Those things are a component of your treatment journey. They are not your sole treatment option because there is, of course, no evidence that can show that, that those two tactics do anything to treat the endometriosis. So it can help your symptoms, but it can't heal your endo. Yeah, diet and lifestyle is awesome for inflammation and for living your optimal, like you're living your life in like in your peak optimal health, which if who doesn't want that? <laughs> yeah, if you're in peak health, if you're sleeping enough hours like and you're rested and you're not in fight or flight because you're not all stressed out all the time. If you're having really adequate, awesome diet and lifestyle, then it will help you be the healthiest that you can be. And that in turn is going to help you feel better than if you're sleeping four hours a night, than if you're working a really stressful job. All of that plays a really huge role, but it's, it doesn't heal endometriosis. And sometimes we hear about people who have healed their endometriosis. I know I was on a website for histamine because now I'm, I'm having a histamine problem. Out of one problem into another. <laughs> Since my surgery, now I have, I'm histamine intolerant. Thank you so much. And I was on a website for histamine intolerance. And the woman who's a really educated, smart woman talking about histamine intolerance mentioned that the doctor told her that she had endometriosis, and but she didn't diagnose it via surgery, just getting, you know, suspected diagnosis via symptoms. And then the doctor was like, you need surgery for this. And she was like, no, I don't. I'm going to heal it with food because food is medicine. This woman said that she used food to heal her endometriosis, which subsequently... Wasn't confirmed that she even had it. <laughs> which subsequently, after a couple of months, disappeared. And I felt a little infuriated reading that because if you didn't know a lot about endometriosis, you might think that food could cure your endometriosis. But really what I think food does is it, it doesn't mask the symptoms. I mean, it diminishes in many ways. It can diminish the symptoms because it can diminish your inflammation. And like we said, put you in optimal health. She never knew if she had endometriosis in the first place. And I think if we remember what we said about the rate of recurrence, these, for example, the Center for Endometriosis or Dr. Redwine and other surgeons, in order to know the rate, the actual rate of recurrence of endometriosis or the opposite, which is the rate at which endometriosis did not recur and did not come back after excision surgery, they had to track the patients and they had to see the pathology reports in a second surgery down the line months or years later. So a lot of meticulous... We have these statistics about reoccurrence aren't based on someone who thinks they have something and who thinks they've healed, quote, with something. They're based on actual, factual, quantifiable evidence that has formulated these statistics. Actual Science, Science under a microscope, yes. <laughs> not just I think I have something and I think I've healed it. Well, I mean, in fact, there are so many things, so many diseases, syndromes, symptoms, everything that can be hugely impacted by lifestyle and diet. So because you think you have endometriosis, when in fact you may just have a terrible diet and you've changed your diet and subsequently cured your symptoms does not mean you had endometriosis and cured it. Those things are not the same. Now, saying that, we're saying that because so we love diet and lifestyle. 
changing my diet turned my world around. Like I went from being crippled in pain and fatigue to like holding a full-time job. Now I have a job and the podcast. How? I credit that to diet for sure. But we don't want anyone to forgo getting endometriosis care based on misinformation about how diet or lifestyle or, for example, you have to do yoga. You have to get in downward dog of yoga and then you have a trusted loved one shove kale up your butt. Oh <laughs> and don't you know the kale enema cures endometriosis. Oh my God, you, you've totally blown my mind. <laughs> don't do that, people. Don't do that. That's no. sarcasm at its yes. best. Okay. <laughs> but we also want to add that like caveat on here, something that Amy really struggled with was even if you are working super hard on your diet and lifestyle and your symptoms do not go away, you're not failing. You're not doing it wrong. You're not not trying hard enough. You're not still holding on to some traumas or the things people have said to me I know, because girl. <laughs> I didn't, quote unquote, heal, quote unquote, cure my endometriosis through all these tactics that other people apparently, without any science, think <laughs> they were. They cured themselves <laughs> by brain retraining. Yes, neural brain retraining is That's awesome. Retrain your brain. That is awesome. Yeah, we I love it. We support done it. done that. Didn't cure endo. Doesn't cure endo. No. Yoga. Every day, baby, at 6 a.m doesn't cure endo diet still needed two surgeries 14 years Mm -hmm. walking meditation love with my fur baby stress management doesn't cure endo nothing which is sad but nothing cures endometriosis but excision surgery is the gold standard for care or shoving kale up your butt. Or, yeah, or that. <laughs> but if you're working on I've all done those it. Things, I have to admit, yes. I have shoved Oh, kale. wow. All right. Hey. That's, we know TMI now. <laughs> I thought I knew everything about Amy, but whoa. <laughs> End up my kitty's butt. No. Oh, no. Okay. Cruelty-free <laughs> podcast, Amy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But seriously, sometimes it's like you feel so desperate to. Anything. I'll try anything. Like my period, I'm sure a lot of you listening, like the. The flares and the menstrual pain is just can be so debilitating. It's like I will I will do anything. And I know I have done because I didn't know I had endo and I didn't know about excision because I didn't even know I had endo. I did everything to try to cure my endo. Everything. Including the kale. <laughs> I moved abroad. I lived in Japan. Then I went and I lived in the jungle. I was like, I have too much stress. I better go live in the jungle. Like, I have soul searched and I have tried to cure my problems, my endo problems. And, and they didn't cure. And in the end, I had stage four. My cul-de-sac was obliterated. I lost my ovary to a grapefruit-sized endometrioma. My intestine, my sigmoid colon, it was narrowed by all the adhesions. And it was like a third of the opening of the width that it should be. And the doctor, after the surgery, told me and my mother, I have no idea how you were going to the bathroom. And I thought that I had been getting better because I didn't know I had endo. And I was like, oh, I'm getting better. And then it got worse. And I couldn't understand. And why am I not getting better? And why are people around me getting better? And oh, he does yoga and he got better. And it was very, it was very frustrating. And it was very heartbreaking for me. And I, and I just felt like I'm not good enough. And that's not the case. 
you're good enough. Yeah, you're worthy of feeling better and you're worthy of not having to experience that pain. You're not failing because you're doing all of those things right and still have pain. That's not the case because those things do not cure or effectively treat or remove your endo. So don't feel down when people are like, well, yeah, I had that and I just stopped eating X, Y, or Z and I'm healed. Well, that's that's not a valid option. And you can say, well, I'm great that worked for you, but I'm on a different treatment journey. Just know that you're doing the absolute best for yourself and those things will not cure it. So don't feel discouraged because they are worth pursuing, but they are not the entirety of your treatment plan. Congratulations, you have made it to the end of this episode. Oh my gosh, the ride is over. You made <laughs> oh it. God. We made it. <laughs> that was a doozy. We've been recording. We're glad you stuck it out with us, okay? <laughs> We really, really, really hope that this information has been helpful to you. We hope that you could learn and laugh with us and be more empowered and more educated. And we understand how overwhelming it can be to find a treatment plan for your endometriosis. We understand how much misinformation is out there. And we also understand how discouraging it can sound, those words, endometriosis has no cure. But there is hope. There are options. There are options. And excision surgery is not a cure, but it is the gold standard for a reason because the rate of recurrence with excision is really low compared to ablation. And it actually treats endometriosis unlike the other treatment options, pregnancy hysterectomy, GNRH drugs, Morena, <laughs> diet and lifestyle, Deva Provera, <laughs> shoving kale up your butt. Yep, that too. When those are not going to be treating endometriosis. So there's no cure, but there is a gold standard. So we hope that you're able to take this information and run with it. <laughs> not run away from us, but like run your mind with it. Take this information and go further. Do more research. Use the resources that we've given you and really dig deep in there because we've just scratched the surface. But we wanted to give this information to you because there are so many times in this journey with Amy where we've looked back and said, oh, I wish we had that information last year or two years ago or even a month ago. And we really strongly wanted to be able to provide that information to people starting their journey or midway through their journey of treatment so they don't have to wait 16 years like Amy and like so many other of you listening right now. We hope that this information helps you to find a resolution like Amy where her life and her quality of life has been so significantly improved. And that's what we want for you all. We want all of you to be able to live the life that you want to live. and. There are treatment options that can help you on the road to that. And wherever you are in your journey and whatever treatment option you have tried or not, we just want you to know that we are so proud of you. Absolutely. That sounds corny, but I just... <laughs> We're proud of you for for doing this and, and for, researching and listening and for, learning. And for living, just living with endometriosis every That's enough as it is. day is so hard and we're just so proud of you for living with this disease this awful hairless kitty in your <laughs> abdominals and it takes a lot of strength to live with this a lot of inner strength and perseverance and you have that 
And strength doesn't always look like you're on top of a mountain with your fists on your hips with a cape on. Like strength can be crying under the covers and strength can be crawling to the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that takes well, a that lot does of strength, take strength. Okay, in your arms <laughs> yeah, to I crawl know. to the bathroom. That core is out of commission. <laughs> <laughs> strength comes in many forms, and we just, we just want you to know that we're really proud of you, and we we love talking to you on the podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Please reach out to us for anything that you want to comment about the episode, or to us in general, or about the kitties. Okay. <laughs> We are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. And don't forget that all the sources that we consulted to make this episode and all of our episodes is on our resources tab on our website. And there you can find links to reputable resources to learn about endometriosis, as well as resources for gut health, mindfulness, meditation, histamine intolerance, and even books that I've loved and that have really influenced me. Thank you so much for taking the time to learn with us and buckling in for this really long ride of a podcast. We love spending time with you and we hope to chat with you soon. 